Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Shane Campbell Staten. In this episode, Arian and I are joined by the brilliant ladies of This Podcast Will Kill You, Dr. Aaron Welsh and Dr. Aaron Allman Updike. Together, we are going to dive into the biology of zombies. We're talking about death, disease, epidemics, behavior manipulating parasites. We got a lot coming at you with this episode. So sit back, grab some candy, and get ready for a very spooky episode because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. So I'm super excited about this episode. Um, This is, you know, part of our special Halloween crossover event, the Biology of Superheroes podcast, and uh, this podcast will kill you. Uh, So as always, I got my man Arian here. Arian, say what's up to the folks. Hey, hey. (laughs) Got you a a new fancy mic. This is our first time we're recording together, man. This is is crazy. Yeah, I think a lot of our listeners don't realize, but... uh, I was recording in California, and Shane was in Montana, and now we are coming at you live from an undisclosed location. Can we disclose the location? Do yeah, we, man. Do the people know where we're at? <laughs> we're the, the Court of Sciences. Uh, so we're smack dab on the campus of UCLA. We're actually we're recording in my brand new office right now, so that's pretty exciting. Um, and for this episode, you know, we had to bring in some heavy hitters, the big guns, the Wonder Twins, the Aarons, Dr. Aaron Welsh and Dr. Aaron Almond Updike from This Podcast Will Kill You. Say what's up, ladies. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so this episode, we're going to dive into zombies. This is uh, one part of uh, the two-part crossover event. Uh, so for this part, we are going to mostly focus on contemporary issues in zombies and how they play out in contemporary science fiction and comic books and so on and so forth. Yeah, so zombies obviously have a really long history. We're not going to touch most of it because that's what we do in the other part of this series. Um, <laughs> but all that's to say, you know, the I think the contemporary rendition, I think it's pretty safe to say started with Romero. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah for definitely. sure. Yeah, so this was, uh, what was the, the, the name of the movie in 68? Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead dead um (laughs) yeah (laughs) um but so zombie stories i mean i think so you know romero like started this whole sort of cascading event for zombies and you know the idea that he portrayed in night of the living dead i think is sort of cascaded in all kinds of ways throughout television and movies and uh and even comic books and so what i want to know from you guys is what was your first sort of experience with zombies and how like how did you react to like the first idea of zombies? Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think I watched Shaun of the Dead when it first came out. It, I was that I was listen, late. It was late. Yeah. I know. I mean it's it's probable that I had an earlier exposure mm. to zombies, but Shaun of the Dead is really the first one that I remember watching and going First of all, this is hilarious. Second of all, I love this. This is just crazy. And then it, I had a lot of dreams about zombies after that. 
And then I kind of like dove into 28 Days Later mm-hmm. and into the other like Dawn of the Dead, the, the 2003 movie. And it was really fun to watch these in, especially because at the same time I was taking microbiology classes and epidemiology classes and thinking, okay, but like how and is that possible and how scared do I need to be of zombies besides just having these ridiculous dreams? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you started off pretty light and then you got heavy into the, like the nasty, like flesh ripping like scenes pretty, pretty quickly after that. Oh yeah, down the rabbit hole as per usual. <laughs> okay. I um I think the first one that I can remember seeing and I think I went and saw it in theater. No, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but I saw it shortly after it came out was the 2003 Dawn of the Dead. And mm. I was absolutely terrified. Just I didn't do scary movies. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea to go watch. And then I think I watched one of the resident evils there's a scene when she's in like a hallway and there's so many zombies trying to get at her and she has to like crawl up above them and she's in an air vent or something like that i remember that very specifically like i think i will have nightmares tonight because i'm remembering it (laughs) just because you mentioned it (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. what about you arian um my first memory was probably a little bit more on the lighthearted side. And just generally speaking, when I was growing up, I wasn't really into zombies until I got older. But there was this movie from, we'll date ourselves. I'll date myself. Like early 90s, I was a kid. Hocus Pocus, one of my all time yes. classic favorite Disney movies. Wow. And yeah, you I'm really taking it that way out just back now. there. And there's this guy, I think Billy Butcherson or something like that. He was the boyfriend of one of the main witches. And she like like he was like brought back from the dead. And so he was always kind of tagging along. He'd lose his head. Um, he'd always curse out his ex and like it was just kind of this like this comedy of errors with him and his body falling apart. Uh, but classic movie and just like an all around fun experience. But my takeaway from zombies between that and just general kind of Halloween scares was like eh, not the most interesting thing. But I think now more than ever, uh, zombies are alive and well, pun intended. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, for sure. What about you, Shane? Oh, man, for me, you know, I actually, you know, I was actually actually, I spent a few hours trying to find this movie and I still have not been able to find this movie today. But for me, I remember I went to a friend's house when I was a kid. I must have been maybe 10 years old and this friend of mine was just a diehard um, horror movie buff. Like, he was just so into it. And I wasn't really into it, but, you know, I liked hanging out, you know, with people. So I just kind of went along for the ride. And I remember I, like, walked in, and they were already in the middle of the movie. And I wasn't really sure what was going on, but it was one of those classic, like, 80s movies, you know, with, you know, like, the kids in, like, the high school. And they were, like, rocking out to music and, you know, making out and, like, all the, you know, all the stuff that they do in the, you know, in this raunchy the 80s zombie, were so exciting. You know? <laughs> Uh, and then at some point you know like they're in the middle of a conversation and this guy like you know he like moves his sheet to a side and there's this completely skinless zombie that just goes brains and it like bites into his head like an apple and the guy starts twitching and like i like i may or may not have peed myself a little bit (laughs) 
Um, I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny that fact. Um, but it scared the crap out of me. It really scared the hell out of me. And that, that was my, that was like my first experience with zombies. Um, but now we see them pretty much everywhere. Uh, you know, and I think that, you know, the, you know, and, uh, we see them in, in movies, obviously, uh, TV, the walking dead is a, you know, is a huge thing. So Arian, like what, like, what do you think, what is the deal with all the zombies all over the place these days? You know, I, I, th- I think they're compelling on screen to a certain degree because of the shock factor. Obviously, uh, the people are in fear. There's the, the terrorizing of, uh, you know, families, and you never know who's going to turn or, or where one's going to come from, even though, uh, you know, there's kind of different angles that people take the approach towards zombies in terms of speed and motion. Like, you have something like with The Walking Dead where they don't get going too quickly, but then you have, um, you know, other iterations of zombies where they're, like, super fast. Um, I hate the the running ones are always just, it's so stressful. It's just like, I mean, if there's going to be hordes, at least have them move slowly is is what I'm saying. Yeah, the World War Z, like, kind of super amped up methamphetamine like zombies is (laughs) an interesting take but you know i I think at the end of the day too a lot of the stories that people are telling now um ultimately revolve around the people's interaction with each other as society starts to fall apart and as things start to deteriorate what do these social circles look like and how do people survive and keep humanity going in the midst of all this chaos and so you have this really interesting backdrop with shows like The Walking Dead and a lot of other movie iterations where the story really starts to become more about the people. And even Mm. with The Walking Dead, for instance, it's almost a play on words where are you talking about these undead entities or are you talking about the remaining survivors and like how little humanity is left within them. Oh man, you know I never even thought about that. That's that's deep. You got real deep just now. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, it seems like the in the modern day incarnations there's like two major schools of zombies, right? So there's the actual rise of the dead, right? So we think about like the classic iterations, Night of the Living Dead, The Walking Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Shaun of the Dead, basically everything that has the the name dead in it, right? But then there's also this sort of plague and infection-based storyline. You know, if we look at 28 Days Later, uh, I think Zombieland, you know, starts with an infection. World War Z, I Am Legend, Quarantine, all of these sort of more modern iterations all have to do with some kind of disease outbreak. Uh, And I want to make sure that we really dive into um, the biology behind both of these uh, two schools of thought. So let's start with the undead. So among us, you know, we have several quote unquote doctors, uh, (laughs) but we have one uh, almost MD, Uh Aaron Almond Updike, (laughs) calling you out. I need to know from you, clinically speaking, what is death? Like, how do you go about categorizing an individual as dead? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. And it's not like as straightforward as you think. There's like a lot of different kinds of death. Um, And at first I was thinking like, oh, you know, like, you know, when some if you've ever watched somebody die, I don't know if that's too morbid, but 
I, I have it. never watched anyone yeah. die. Oh. No. Me neither. Nope. Okay. Nope. Okay, just us. Just us then. <laughs> it's messed but up that like, we're laughing right now, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, we're contributing to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if there is a moment that it happens that you're just like, oh, now that person is gone. Mm-hmm. And um, but in terms of how you actually define that, like how doctors ab- are able to actually call like time of death, 557 p.m. or whatever, um, there's two main categories of death. The first is what's called clinical death. And clinical death doesn't always actually mean permanent legal death, but it basically just means when your blood stops circulating and you stop breathing. So someone can actually go into clinical death if they have a severe uh, cardiac arrest, a severe mm. heart attack, essentially, and their heart stops beating and they're on the floor and you have to then perform CPR. If you do that, you can, at least in theory, bring them back from that cardiac death. But once your heart stops beating, you basically are, quote unquote, dead. Because what then happens is that your blood stops circulating, all of your tissues aren't getting oxygen, and then they begin to die very quickly, especially your brain, which starts to die within just a few minutes of not having access to oxygen. Mm, this so, takes just a few minutes. Uh, yeah, for your brain to start essentially dying. So you can bring someone back from a cardiac death uh, sometimes. <laughs> but if you don't, then that cardiac death becomes irreversible, and then it would be actual death. But there's another death that's even more sort of wishy-washy, although it's not that wishy-washy. It's called brain death. And so in brain death, your brain, like the main part of your brain, your cerebrum, and your brain stem are both completely without any function. So there's no electrical activity. Oftentimes there's no blood flow. And there's no reflexes whatsoever. There's no responses to any stimuli. And so your brain is irreversibly dead. Even though you can be kept alive, the rest of your organs can be kept alive by a ventilator and by pacemakers. So your body can still be alive, but your brain is actually dead. And so that's what's termed brain death. And if that, if your complete entire brain and brainstem is brain dead then that is also a legal definition of death and then a person will be declared legally dead and then actually their organs can be used for transplantation (laughs) oh man wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's death is dark i guess it it Mm -hmm. is dark i mean it's i mean i i think it's sort of one of the most like fundamental aspects of of life, like everyday life that we have to deal with at a really young age, right? Like dealing with death. I remember the first time when I was a kid trying to understand like, you know, the idea of being dead. It was just like no longer being around ever, you know, it was just so deep and devastating to me. Um, And it's, I think, you know, something that I think generally people struggle with in modern society all the time. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that in looking at, I mean, because you can find various definitions of of death and there's, you know, legal death versus this death. And you used to be able to call someone legally dead, even if they weren't actually dead, if you just wanted to, like, ostracize them completely from society. And then someone could legally kill them because then they're not a living person. (laughs) Sounds like a double jeopardy. Double jeopardy. Yeah, Yeah, I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) 
Best movie ever. But what's yes. interesting about... <laughs> we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I love that movie. What's interesting is that in defining death, you kind of also have to define life. Like if death is when life is over, then what, how do you define life? So it's a really interesting, like in defining death, we're also defining what constitutes life. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And let me ask one question for the, uh, for the folks without extra letters after their name. Uh, so clinical death, right? You have the option of CPR, but I'm assuming that with brain death, there's no sort of equivalent last ditch effort to restart things or just, like, it's just a done deal once you hit brain death or am yeah, I Yeah. So there, are, no, yeah, you're totally right. There's, um, there's aspects of like brain death that we don't call brain death where parts of your brain are dead or, uh, parts of your brain are unresponsive. So things like coma, coma is not death, but it could be that large parts of your brain are completely unresponsive. Mm -hmm. And then there's also things like um, persistive vegetative state, which I think there's actually a, another term for it now, but I didn't write it down, so I don't remember it. <laughs> okay. but, but that would be where like maybe the part of your brain that controls your higher functions is dead, but you would still have like reflex responses and things like that. And so that's where you get into this very questionable territory of that's not considered death and it's not considered legal death uh, but a person may or may not be able to sustain life without say the aid of a ventilator mm -hmm. but for someone yeah for someone to be declared brain dead uh, there's like a series of it's an actually a pretty intensive process where you have to have multiple doctors verify and you have to do a whole series of tests to make sure that there is absolutely no response left in either the brain proper or the brainstem because you wouldn't want to declare somebody brain dead if there's even any chance that they could come back. So, but there has been, there have been several cases of like locked in. I knew you were going to talk about locked in because yes. I know it's your most scary thing and I wrote yeah. about it. Good. Wait, what is, yes. what, what is, is locked, locked in? in? That sounds terrifying. <laughs> okay. Hope you're ready for some nightmares. Okay. Yeah. We are literally yeah. on the edge of our seats right now. <laughs> Oh, I knew she was going to ask you about this. <laughs> so locked in is this very, very terrifying syndrome that they're, it's described as a pseudocoma. So in a coma, you don't have any sleep-wake cycle and a person is unresponsive to any tactile, verbal, uh, any type of stimuli in general. They might have reflex responses and things like that, but in general, they're not responsive at all. With locked in, a person is physically unresponsive. They are completely paralyzed and cannot move. They cannot speak, not because their vocal cords are paralyzed, but because their brain and breathing control is off. So they can't form words and they can't use their breath to actually speak. They may or may not be able to breathe on their own, but they're fully conscious with no loss of cognitive function, but they can't communicate that. Sometimes wow. they can still move their extraocular muscles so they can move their eyes and they may or may not be able to like blink voluntarily, in which case you could try and come up with a code like blink once for yes and twice for no. Uh, but yeah, this is a real thing. The one big difference though is that in locked in syndrome, a person, because they are awake and conscious, they do have a sleep wake cycle. So when you check their brain, they do have like 
the awake brain waves versus sleeping brain waves. So it's much easier now today to diagnose someone with locked in than it was in the past, which is what Aaron's desperately terrified well, of. Well, I mean, I remember reading this horrible, like really sad story about this man who was locked in, but no one knew it. They thought that he was just in this persistent vegetative state. Yeah. And he heard his family members come in and talk to him and, you know, because he was kept alive for years and years and sort of to have these conversations with him thinking that he was no longer responsive, no longer aware in any way and would never be again and have these conversations like I wish that you would just die already, you know, stuff oh like that, because God. it becomes it. This is very dark. I'm sorry, but like <laughs> straight off the bat, it, it, yeah. it weaves into this. Like, you know, we're going to have to label this like PG 13 or something. Yes. I'm yeah, sorry. sorry. No, 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 it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Go on. But I just remember how hor I just, how horrible that, that would be. How yeah. scary. It's yeah. very scary. Yeah. yeah. That sounds like, like the stuff that horror movies of, are made of. Yeah. Very yeah. literally. Yeah. yeah. So we're talking about this this boundary between life and death. Yeah. This so as an evolutionary biologist, this obviously gets me thinking about like if we zoom out and look across the tree of life, like the species that really sort of push that boundary to the extreme, and you know we see that there are there's several different species that you know really kind of toe this line between life and death in really fascinating and kind of um creepy ways and you know a lot of these species you know are have evolved under extreme conditions right so typically extreme performance in the natural world evolves under extreme conditions and in this particular case there are a suite of animals that live at the ends of the world right in arctic regions where they have to uh deal with extreme cold for months at a time. And this is obviously, you know, a really, really rough environment to try to live out your life in. But it's particularly rough for cold-blooded animals, like things like frogs and lizards. And that's why very few of these types of animals live very far north. Like they're mostly concentrated in the tropics. But as an example, there's one species of frog called a wood frog that occurs over a broad distribution across uh, the northern U.S. and Canada, and it gets as high as Alaska. Now, because they live in these really cold Arctic environments, they have to deal with extremely cold winters, which can be especially tough for these cold-blooded animals, right? So they, because they can't produce their own body heat. So they deal with this in a really fascinating and kind of creepy way. So first... They freeze solid, completely solid. They pump water out of their cells and they convert the glycogen in their liver into glucose and they pump that into their blood. They basically um, pump sugar uh, from their liver into their blood. And then they accumulate urea, uh, which we try to get rid of through urination. Uh, they accumulate that in their blood. And this combination of glucose and urea, it's serves as an antifreeze, right? So it minimizes crystal formation as they freeze. And if you, and this is really important because when water crystallizes, it can cause a lot of tissue damage. But during this time, they, their hearts completely stop beating. There's no breathing, right? They completely cease their rhythmic pulmonary, uh, pulmonary breathing. There's no tissue perfusion, so they're not 
pumping any blood to their tissues, which means that their tissues aren't getting oxygen. And there's no neurobehavioral reflexes. And this goes on for months. But then within hours of thawing, the frogs reanimate and they just go on about their business. This is really, really extreme and kind of creepy. I think, you know, this is sort of one of those examples where, you know, these extreme conditions really sort of push, you know, um, they push animals to to do things that are just way beyond what we would consider normal or even feasible. Yeah, man, that is so crazy. I mean, so by your definition, that frog is totally dead, right? Super, super dead. So what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so then, I mean, I guess that brings the question, you know, so we have, obviously, you know, we have our own limits of, of where life meets death. And then there are species around the planet that sort of, that really kind of push those limits. But what happens when we exceed those limits? Like what happens beyond that threshold point between life and death? You know, it, yeah, and can we find any sort of science if we're thinking about this classic example of zombification, like like is seen in The Walking Dead or in Romero's original films, like this Walking Dead? Is there? Can we find any sort of science that would feed the fiction of this narrative? Now, recently, uh, in 2017, there was a paper published in Open Biology by a group of scientists at University of Washington and the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Biology in Germany, where they looked at what they call the thanatotranscriptome. Now, thanato comes from the Greek meaning death, and the transcriptome basically describes how genes are expressed uh, in the body. Now, they looked at genes in mice and a small fish called a zebrafish, at one day, two days, and four days after death. And they were trying to understand exactly what happens to the body's basic functions after you die. Now, gene expression generally is sort of the basic powerhouse of life, right? So everything that we do requires the, mon- the molecular tools that are encoded by our genes, and expression is how we translate that, blue- that blueprint into tools. So one might expect that at the moment of death, right, that all activity would immediately stop. But what they showed was that some of it did, but other genes actually turned on after death. So some turned on 30 minutes after death, some turned on one day after death, some two days, some even turned on four days after the animal died. So these genes are involved in like inflammation, stress, immunity, and other processes, right? And this was really surprising, right? This idea that you can actually turn genes on after death. So the key point here is the fact that a dead body is able to synthesize new molecules up to four days, at least up to four days after death. And this suggests that you know, there is still enough stored energy in that dead body to maintain the self-organizational processes that we consider as core to life. Are you kidding me? No, it's super creepy. And I, 
and I re- and right now, even right now, I have goosebumps right now because that study kind of creeped me out a little bit. And you know, obviously, you know, they're not, you know, they're not saying that you know, like this is the stuff of zombies, you know. Um, but it's really surprising. That's what we're saying. Yeah, but but we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you should say that because that's really what it sounds like. Yeah, and and that's sort of where where I'm going. Um, so I should say, like, one, like you know, the point of the paper wasn't about zombies, right? But our understanding of this this sort of genetic breakdown, right, as, as tissues die, right, as an organism dies, I mean, it actually has a lot of really important implications for our ability to, uh, like, transport uh, tissues from, you know, from, uh, from donors to, uh, to new patients that might need a new heart or a new liver, right? Understanding how those tissues break down can potentially help us to understand you know, how to keep them from doing that, right, and help them to maintain that, that, that homeostasis, right, that, uh, what we call, um, you know, that, that point that is, is good for life, that homeostatic set point. But it also brings up the, you know, this, this idea that, you know, if there is some infectious material or parasite that can take advantage of this sort of maintained biological process after death, I mean, isn't that kind of the stuff of zombies like that that is that is really really that's a really creepy idea for sure i mean if if there if if the body if a human body a mouse body whatever can still make proteins can still do these things i mean what would it take to sustain that manufacturing just more energy and more that's crazy to me and so can i ask a quick question about that paper yeah um was the pattern of gene expression like markedly different after death than it was during at any stage during life? Like, can you can that be like sussed out? Yeah. So I think, you know, essentially what we're you know, what you're picking up is the sort of gradual degradation of those core biological processes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, even, you know, 30 minutes after uh, after death there, you see some, uh, some significant differences, right? And those differences become more significant the farther you get away from, uh, from the time of death. Okay. Weird man. Yeah. But this also brings to mind the, uh, it, uh, Arian is kind of freaking out over here. His <laughs> eyes are <laughs> really <too>. wide. <laughs> we <laughs> were over speechless. here like, this is the first time I've ever seen uh, Arian speechless. Yeah, I've already checked out after locked-in syndrome, and it's just (laughs) compounded from there. Uh, It's just terrifying stuff. Um, And, and you know, the the one thing about locked-in syndrome, because when I think about these these zombie shows and the stuff that goes on in sci-fi, when the outbreak first occurs, everyone is really tentative when it comes to encountering the undead for the first time and maybe it's a loved one that just turned or uh, a child or a daughter a family member friend what have you and when they kind of come into contact with them there's always that hesitation of what happened to you are you still in there i don't understand why the behavior shifted i feel threatened what do i do and and now this idea of locked in syndrome is kind of coming into my mind where like are they like trapped in some sort of waking locked in syndrome type experience where maybe there's some i don't know shadow of consciousness of their past humanity stuck in their body but unable to kind of get off the path of this new zombie directive of having to rip shred and tear whoever's in their path and it's just 
oh, it's just terrifying yeah. if these people still have a shred of humanity left in them. Um, and the moral complications are something that I just hope to not see in my lifetime. But maybe we're already on the pathway there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that holdup is exactly what gets people eaten alive yeah. in zombie movies. I think I, I, think I wouldn't make it. Yeah. Like that's, that's what's happening. I, episode one or two, I'd be out and, you know. Yeah, but you know, so we see at the at the end of uh, season one of The Walking Dead. So I'm gonna pause here and say this is gonna be a huge spoiler. But first of all, if you have not finished season one of The Walking Dead by now, you brought it on yourself. It's um, your own fault. Yeah. You know, but if you really don't want the spoilers, pause now, watch the first season, and come back and press play. <laughs> okay, fair warning. So at the end of season one of The Walking Dead, there uh, they've made it. Um, you know, uh, Rick and like his group of of survivors have made it to the CDC, and um, they finally get the scientist at the CD center to uh, to open up, and they're asking him like, "What's going on?" And he shows them this video of this test subject who is on the verge of death, and shows them dying. Right. And this is through like an MRI image, and you see all of the brain activity cease. And then right at that moment, you start to see things light back up, right? And, but it's specifically in the brainstem. And then, the, then this person, their body starts to reanimate and their jaws start going and they start thrashing around, so on and so forth. And so we were thinking about this, this idea of the thanatotranscriptome, right? This, this gene expression after death. Right. If some of those core processes are there, right, even the, just like the most basic of processes, even if what we consider the person has died, like those higher functions, their sense of humor, you know, their their wit, like who they are, who we knew them as as a person. You know, if those basic biological processes are still there, right, if their you know, muscles are still technically able to function, if, you know, if their brainstem is still technically able to send signals to their muscles and coordinate movement to walk, to chew, to so on and so forth. Right? If there is a parasite, you know, which is what we see in you know, the walking dead, you know, and they don't know if it's, if it's fungal or viral or bacterial, but it seems like there is some sort of a parasite that is in taking advantage of this recent state of death to then animate, you know, this, this husk of, you know, of a host you know, to then acquire nutrients and resources for itself. Now, of course, they take it like to the extreme, right? You see things with, you know, it's just like, you know, heads that aren't attached to anything that are still trying to bite people and all kinds of nonsense. Yeah. And, you know, also corpses that have been like long dead for obviously months and beyond that are still animated. And that's obviously way beyond, you know, the, any sort of realm of reality. But this idea of a parasite potentially manipulating a host for four days, right, after, you know, after death, you know, sort of use, utilizing what's left over from their homeostatic set point, like that is really, really intriguing. You know, but it also brings us to this, the more recent um, aspects of zombification, right? Which is this, this idea of diseases and mass epidemics. And when we're thinking about these diseases and mass epidemics, so we see this play out in 
World War Z. You know, obviously, The Walking Dead starts out like this. Uh, I Am Legend, uh, both the the uh, the original book and the movie with uh, with Will Smith. You know, they all are based around this idea of epidemics. Um, so my question is, what when we look back through history, like what is the closest we have ever gotten to this type of global pandemic that we see play out? You know, on, in the TV or in movies. Now, I know amongst all of us, again, one of us is probably the most ridiculous bibliophile I have ever met in my entire life. <laughs> Hi, Aaron Welsh. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> what can you tell me about the history of 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 like disease spread across the human race? Like what is the closest we've ever gotten to a global pandemic? Well, we have not just gotten close to, we have certainly had many global pandemics uh, this century and for probably every century since humans were gathering together in, in civilizations or Whoa. what we can call civilizations. And some of my... I, one of my favorite topics, <laughs> of course. What's your favorite pandemic? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's got to be. I mean, it's it's pretty basic, but it's the Black Death. So the Great Whoa. Mortality, whatever you want to call it. So this is the, the plague or the bubonic plague that spread throughout um, Europe and parts of northern Africa, parts of Asia from 1347 roughly to 1353 around there is when they put this huge spread. And this has this was estimated to have killed um i think around 40 to 60 percent of europe's population <laughs> whoa like, yeah i mean it was and some some countries experienced mortality rates of 80 percent like 80 percent of everyone living there died wow. died within the span of four years more or less what yes that, it how <laughs> how have i not heard of this where was what? i Oh my gosh, pick up some books. I can recommend some. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how there haven't been amazing movies about this. Um, But yeah, so this, this obviously with such a huge mortality rate and such a huge just death toll led to a lot of things breaking down. And so it's when you, when we were talking about sort of okay, well, how does civilization break down or what, what, do, what does the government do and po- what does the population do in the face of a pandemic that's threatening everyone's lives? And this is a really, to me, interesting example of it because this was in the time before we knew germ theory did not exist. You know, a lot of diseases were thought to have, were thought to be just in bad air. So a miasma was sort of this, the cause of disease. Like, oh, it's a swampy area you're going to get disease there. Oh, and my asthma as it's not, not like your asthma, but no. <laughs> my asthma as, as, as a condition unto itself. Yes. M-I-A-S-M-A. Oh, so okay. My asthma. Yeah. My asthmatism. And, and so another, another thing that a lot of people uh, attributed to the cause of disease was just personal faults. So you were just, uh, weak, so you were going to get the disease, or you were too um, aggressive or too whatever. And so there were these personalities that were disease prone, which is absurd. <laughs> but, but anyway, so it, when this happened, when this when this mortality happened, 
it happened to everyone. It happened whether you were rich or poor, whether you were man or woman. It happened whether you're a child, uh, you know, an adult, whatever. Everyone was in harm's way, basically. And so that kind of led to this shift in this mindset as to the cause of disease. So instead of being the result of this individual sin, during the, during the Black Death, it was punishment dealt to this entire civilization who had gone wrong in some way. And in terms of government response, there wasn't much they could do because they didn't know what caused the disease. They didn't really know that it was a disease. Was it contagious? Maybe. Um, and then also, they just didn't have the manpower to, to enact any sort of control measures because 50% of the office had died. Wow. Like, no one was left <laughs> to do anything. So bodies piled up in the streets. Um, and, but that being said, there, there were these broad population responses. So when this started to happen, when one city was hit with another, was hit with um, the plague and then that traveled to the next city and so on, uh, people started looking for a group to blame. And so there were a lot of skate. There was a lot of scapegoating going on, and a lot of um, ostracizing, and a lot of exclusion, and then a lot of just straight up murder and extermination. Oh lord! Which was yeah. So you know, in addition to this sort of um, shunning and murder and so on, the government did try a few things. So quarantine was actually developed, or the idea, the concept of quarantine, which is keeping people in isolation, that was developed. Uh, during the the great death, the, the black uh, black death, and so quarantine comes from the Italian for forty days, basically, and this was started first in Dubrovnik, uh, now Croatia, and basically what they did was, oh, there's a ship that's coming into the harbor. Are there? Does anyone have plague on board? Okay, if they do, we're going to keep you in the harbor. No one's allowed to disembark for forty days. This, this didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Because for many reasons. One is because plague is transmitted, bubonic plague is transmitted by fleas that are found on rats. And so the rats were, of course, free to come and go as they pleased <laughs> into the harbor and back onto the ships. And so if, so disease, this didn't stop anything. Um, but in general, they did sort of have these plague houses where, oh, there's a plague uh, case in here, the whole house gets boarded up. And that kind of continued uh, throughout, whenever there was another epidemic or pandemic of plague throughout history, because there were more every, you know, every few years, and then there were some greater um, instances in like the 1600s and, and so on. And this sort of, okay, someone's sick, shut them out, we're like, they're, they're going to fend for themselves, we're done, goodbye. Wow. But and so to me, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about this, this Black Death pandemic and the huge loss of life and the response and the sort of like, well, there's nothing that anyone can do, so we're just going to take care of ourselves. And the government breaks down and blah, blah, blah. It seems very negative. And then to think about some of the ways that we have responded in more recent pandemics or epidemics. So the 1918 flu, the um, 2014 to 2015 Ebola uh, epidemic, 
these are it to compare and contrast those I think is really interesting because this is when we start to get an organized response with this knowledge of germ theory. Okay, that is contagious in this particular way. Flu, respiratory droplets, Ebola, bodily fluids. How do we con- enact control measures and learn from our, fail- our, our, our failings um, with each respective pandemic or epidemic? So I got to ask, Aaron, how did this Black Plague even get stamped out at the end of the day? Like, how are we even here? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. So it's it's kind of funny to read about these accounts of how it just kind of did just peter out. And one of the ideas is that it it hit it, it wiped through anyone who was susceptible. And so by the end of the day. If you were in a village and 50% of the village had died you and you were still alive, you probably had gotten exposed and you became immune to it. And so everyone who was left was either recovered and had like lifetime immunity from the plague or just got lucky and it just kind of died out. It's yeah, it, it's kind of is this unsatisfying explanation as to the end this like anticlimactic map. Well, it just kind of went out just means it could happen again i mean well yeah (laughs) Yeah, i mean it's also i mean that idea i mean it's a pretty um you know it's it's probably one of the one of the core ideas of you know of evolution right so evolution by natural selection uh in a you know in a way um you know if you think about you have a large population and you have a selection pressure um i.e a disease that that kills a bunch of people you know if by chance there happen to be some individuals that are resistant or resilient to you know you know to that particular strain they're more likely to live and they're more likely to have children as a result and if that ability to be resilient is heritable if they can pass it on to their kids you know because they're leaving more kids in the next generation more of the next generation is going to be resilient um you know but we also see the same thing on the other side of the equation right i mean that the evolution of um antibiotic resistant strains of you know of various diseases that comes about by the by the same process so basically we're looking at two different different sides of of a coin when it comes to to these two things playing out mhm yeah definitely always this arms race between <laughs> the host and the parasite yeah which we, we'll talk a little bit more about arms races in uh the other part of our crossover event yeah for mm-hmm. sure <laughs> so up to this point we've talked about we've talked about death we've talked about uh global pandemics but i think a lot of this zombie story revolves a good degree around host manipulation Right, so in order for the walking dead to come to life or in order for um, some disease outbreak to zombify like some subset of the population, whatever is infecting these bodies, either alive or dead, has to change their behavior, how they function, how they move to some degree. So this brings up the question, is it possible for a parasite to actually manipulate a host right, in this classic way that that we know as as zombification. And I think you know when we look across the tree of life the answer you know quite frankly is yes. Uh so we see that there are you know a lot of different organisms that manipulate hosts in a lot of very interesting and kind of uh creepy ways. Probably one of the most well-known examples of zombification is probably the fungus Ophiocordyceps, you know what is typically referred to as the zombie fungus. Now Ophiocordyceps infects the body 
and mind of many different insect species, and it drives them up plants to die. And then once those insects die, the fungus literally sprouts out of their heads and other parts of their bodies, and then it releases spores into the environment that then rains down in the forest to infect, you know, other potential hosts. Now, this is really, really creepy. And when you're talking about a species of fungus that's able to infect a bunch of different types of insects, you have to remember that you're talking about species that are millions of years removed from each other on the phylogenetic tree. There are many, many insects, and they've been evolving for a really long time. So this particular genus of fungus, this group of of fungi, have been able to figure out how to manipulate a really wide diversity of hosts in order to make their living. And this has also been, you know, this idea of cordyceps manipulating hosts has been used, I think, a lot in uh, in modern science fiction in order to feed this sort of zombie lore. I think one of the most recent incarnations of this is a book called The Girl with All the Gifts. Now, Aaron, I know we've talked yes. about this book before. <laughs> What did you, can you give a, a brief rundown of this book to folks? So from what I remember, um, and I don't want to give too much away, but basically you are thrown into this world that is clearly some sort of post-apocalyptic zombie scenario. And the whole idea is that you're the, um, so there's this teacher, right? And this group of children who are in a classroom And for some reason, they're separated away. And for some reason, every night, they're locked away in this dungeon. And the kids don't sleep and they don't eat normally. And it's very mysterious and confusing. Until later on in the book, you discover that they are somehow zombies or were infected by some sort of zombie pathogen. But they have recovered to the point where they are not just constantly out of control but the whole punchline i guess or the whole important thing is that it turns out that the zombie pathogen is a cordyceps fungus some sort of cordyceps fungus that's infecting them and then it has infected the whole world and blah 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 it's a great book and really fun and also the boy on the bridge is like a prequel so that's another great uh, story you should read that too yeah yeah actually i actually just picked up uh the second book uh i haven't actually jumped into it yet but i'm super excited to uh so i think the girl with all the guests is also it was relatively recent i think it was just published in 2014 but they all have also already just made a movie about it which i have not seen yet but i'm also super excited to dive into so cordyceps obviously it's been used in the books but it's also been used in video games recently so the last of us uh, also uses this this sort of cordyceps fungus as a as a way of driving the storyline uh, as you as you play throughout this this particular game. Aaron, you've uh, you've played The Last of Us, yes? Yeah, I played it a while back. Uh, I remember the first one came out in around 2013, uh, and it was kind of this post-apocalyptic survivor story about uh, a young man and uh, a girl who would find themselves after this uh, pretty horrific disaster happened, an outbreak. And they're literally making their way through the landscape of this completely transformed uh, world together and surviving not only the people, but some uh, pretty freaky monsters yeah. Yeah, along but, the way. And they're all like sort of these like weird infected 
individuals that have all these like weird, strange fungus growths coming out of their head, and they're using like echolocation because they can't see because the fungus is essentially their face now. It's it's very creepy, very creepy, super creepy stuff. Yeah, oh. that sounds really fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I think wanna, I want to see what that game looks like. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you should definitely check it out. It's fun. You you might lose a couple hours sleep over it though, like both from like playing it and then just trying to get to bed afterwards because it is kind of creepy. <laughs> okay, good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Um, so when we're talking about both, like the girl with all the gifts and uh, the Last of Us, there's this component of, you know, you have this this parasitic fungus that's infecting these populations, but there's always like some remnant population, right? And there's always like some aspect of, you know, of exactly what we've been talking about, this, this sort of path, this relationship between, you know, pathogens infecting populations and then some subset of the surviving population being resilient, right? So how the selection plays out sort of on, on both sides of, of, uh, of this equation. And I think both of these stories uh, kind of play on that idea. But, you know, when, we, when we're thinking about this, you know, there's this idea that, you know, a parasite can actually affect, infect and manipulate the behavior of its human hosts. And so is this actually possible? So, Aaron's, what can you tell us about this? <laughs> I mean, the short answer is, yeah. <laughs> okay. Definitely. <laughs> and, the, and the other answer would be that there's probably a lot more that we don't know about. So yeah. we can give you a few examples of parasites that we know affect or may affect human behavior um, or are suggested to. But that's, I think, just the tip of the iceberg yeah. as far as um, as far as it goes. I think we have the best evidence for other situations that are maybe not humans exactly, but closer to home. I think when we look at the cordyceps example, it's easy to think, well, that's just an insect. So it's very far removed. That could never happen to something as complicated and blah, blah, blah as a human, right? Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of other parasites like toxoplasmosis, for example. Um, toxoplasmosis is a parasite that infects cats. But before it infects cats, which are its final host, it actually infects rats. And what it does to these rats is it gets into their brain and then it causes them to lose all fear of cats. So they're actually attracted to things like cat urine. And this means that they get eaten by cats a lot more easily, which means that the parasite in the rat's brain is then transmitted to the cat, which is where it wants to be. And so that's a really great example of a parasite that is what we call trophically transmitted. So it has to be eaten in order to be transmitted. Oh. And a lot of these parasites that are transmitted in this way actually do manipulate the behavior of their hosts. So toxoplasmosis is a really great example. Um, also, other other parasites like other flatworms um, will do the same thing where they'll they'll infest a. Uh, a fish brain and then they'll cause this fish to flop around on the surface of the water and then uh what do you call it a bird <laughs> <laughs> the, 
uh, like a pelican or a crane will come by and it'll scoop up that fish because it's flopping around on the surface of the water. It's easy to find. And then the bird is actually the definitive host for that parasite. And so this type of behavior modification is actually not that uncommon in the natural world. That's an we don't ex- have... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that's like a really extremely extreme and complicated way to try to make a living instead of just infecting one host and being there infecting a host as a means to get to another host as a means to get to another host like that's like a really complex lifestyle is this something that we see very often in in parasites oh my god yeah yeah. for sure (laughs) (laughs) it's like why i get so excited about parasites because like almost all of them i mean maybe not obviously not all of them but like so 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 many of them are transmitted in this way where they'll infect one host and then they'll come out as a certain life stage and then they'll maybe swim through the water and burrow into their next host and then they'll have to be eaten by another host and i mean you know so so many parasites that's how they have evolved to just be transmitted and and also ones that need to be transmitted by just multiple or need to adapt to multiple hosts so like any sort of vector-borne parasite or pathogen has to learn how to live inside a vector like an arthropod and learn how to live inside often a mammal or a reptile or an amphibian or something like that and that takes i mean that's also crazy yeah yeah It's, it's really awesome so is there any relationship between how long the infected has been exposed to this and what their behavioral pattern is? Like, does it happen instantaneously where they're automatically taken control of and start behaving this way? Or over time, do the symptoms kind of progressively get worse and their behavior much more altered? Yeah, that's a great question. So it definitely would be after a period of time. So almost every infection has what's called like an incubation period. And so that's the period of time where after you get exposed, but before you start showing symptoms. And so the same would be true with for any type of parasite that causes behavior modification. So you need time for this parasite to basically make its way to the part of your brain where it would actually be causing this behavior modification. So it definitely wouldn't be instantaneous. And I believe, and don't like fully quote me on this because it's been a while since I've actually studied these parasites, but it often has to do like the extent of the symptoms can have to do with not just where the parasite goes, but actually how many parasites you get infected with. So hosts that are infected with multiple parasites might have more severe symptoms in the case of something like toxoplasmosis or the flatworms that are infesting fish. Um, They might have more severe behavior modification symptoms than someone that just, or a fish or a rat that has a lower burden of parasites. So with toxoplasmosis, you mentioned that, you know, when, so the, the rats are sort of like the natural kind of, you know, like one of the, the natural stopping points or like holdover mm-hmm. points in its, in its complex lifestyle, uh, in its complex mm-hmm. life cycle. And those rats get really a- attracted to cat urine. But when it mm-hmm. ends up in humans, do, are, do humans, are, you know, are people who are infected just like, oh, yeah, cat urine, that's the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know. There are like crazy cat ladies. No, <laughs> just kidding. But I do remember a paper, a popular science article for, I guess it was a series of popular science articles a few years back in which uh, they were basically taking very liberally from this study that had shown possible links between infection, human infection with Toxoplasma gondii, which is the causative agent of toxoplasmosis, and behaviors like risk take increased risk-taking behavior and other sort of potential behavioral modifications. And it was kind of, from what I understand, it was a pretty tenuous link. And there also has, it also has been linked uh, in potentially uh, as a, one of the risk factors for uh, adolescent onset uh, paranoid schizophrenia in terms of it's oh. been like, oh, well, uh, um, toxoplasmosis might be a causative agent of that. But I think that's also another really sort of circumstantial or tenuous link there. I don't think it's been shown mechanistically how that would actually happen. Yeah. So it's kind of it's more suggestive at this point than it is conclusive. You know, a lot of this stuff is fascinating, too. When I think back to what Shane brought up with The Last of Us, there were these different types of monsters, uh, and they were categorized based on how long they had been exposed to the infection and infected themselves. So I I think there was, like, runners, clickers, um, bloaters, and stalkers. And runners were, like, maybe you had just been infected. It's a couple of days physically your transformation hadn't really occurred that much and you were maybe just a little bit faster and agile uh and then all the way to something like clickers when it gets into the echolocation that Shane was talking about and they had been exposed for about a year or so uh they were completely overtaken physically transformed by like the fungal mutation that came with that and were at that point not even recognizable as humans I think a stage or two earlier, they might still have like half their face or like one eyeball left or something that kind of like winked at you and said, like, I used to be human. But now they (laughs) almost look like this fungal floride type of sort of visual effect and all the way to bloaters, which were like these creatures that were fully armored with the fungus and uh, like super empowered and all that. So it's really hard to kill. Yeah ridiculously hard to kill so you know I, I think from a scientific perspective they really took a look at okay how would these how would this mutation in this infection like have an impact over the years because the bloaters had been exposed and infected for years and years and years and I think the guys at Naughty Dog the developer that made the game did a pretty good job at kind of exploring that evolution and then from at least a gaming perspective relating it back to how it impacts their physicality and the way you interact with it as a player uh, they didn't get too much into personality changes and some of the other stuff but I, I think in the real world that's a crazy avenue to explore where it, like you know, your mental pathways are kind of being changed and it's really adapting who you are as a person. So um, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, and and there's sort of all of these, in terms of like these minute um, personality changes, there are a lot of studies recently that have focused on the microbiome. And I, we won't get into it, but the microbiome is not a parasite. It's not a pathogen. It's a part of you. It's it's your, your, your gut microbiome in particular. There have been all these links drawn in, in between how you behave and what your what the composition of your microbiome is. And I think that's just going to really yield some really interesting and potentially uh, terrifying or at least like shocking results in the future. 
Yeah, but also with with some really important potential medical implications as well, right? I mean, if this play, you Absolutely. know, if the, if the microbiome plays such a a huge role in who we are, like obviously, like we would die without our our, our microbiomes. Like trying to understand this sort of symbiotic relationship between you know us and all the different flora and fauna in our guts. I mean, seems seems really really important. But it also seems like, totally. you know, where we are right now is like we are just sort of, you know, we're like just skimming the edge of sort of understanding, you know, these, you know, how different infectious materials or like non-human entities are able to manipulate human hosts, at least. You know, but obviously, like thinking about these um, these questions, you know, I mean, the biology behind um you know, but the bi- the biology that we've been exploring around zombie lore also has really important implications for things like you know disease and organ transplants and cryogenics and um, yeah and all sorts of things that you know that I think we need to be thinking about right now you know for a lot of different reasons. I mean, humans are more mobile right now than we have ever been, and we're spreading around the planet. And, you know, the diseases that we carry with us are, sp- are spreading to, you know, to new peoples. We're exposing, you know, people that haven't been exposed before. And I think all this has, like, really important implications for global public health. Absolutely. Most definitely. Yeah, I guess in, in line with that, my last question to the group would be, you know, we see this world where we have an ever-increasing and efficient method of public global transportation and a corresponding level of population density that I I think every day probably breaks the record of what history has seen before. And given all of that, how close are we to an outbreak? Because we've talked about a lot of scary stuff. Mm. And it seems like in all these movies and TV shows, you know, you're just one bad in Rick Grimes' case, gunshot wound away from waking up in the hospital and finding the world upside down, or in Brad Pitt's uh, case, you know, you're like one taxi cab away from getting bit by a crazy stranger that's like feasting on a fellow New Yorker uh, once the you know ground zero outbreak happens. But is this plausible in the real world? Can something like this happen? And how quickly could it happen? And yeah. how prepared are we to respond? Yeah, we've seen it happen in, I mean, obviously, you know, as we've been talking about, we've seen it happen in the past. I think we would like to think that, you know, medicine and, you know, in modern society has advanced to a stage where it wouldn't really be as much of a thing now. But, you know, even recently, like we've seen some pretty major outbreaks in, you know, in the in the news that have had like pretty, you know, traumatic impacts on populations around the world. What do you ladies think? I think that we are, I mean, we're on the verge and it could happen at any time. And it doesn't, I mean, not necessarily zombie specific, Yeah. but for instance, a pandemic influenza, that could absolutely happen very easily. Mm -hmm. And even though yes, modern medicine has progressed and technology is always, we're faster and faster with producing vaccines and developing vaccines. The CDC estimates that it would take six months to develop a vaccine for a pandemic virus. So that would be a pandemic flu strain. So that would be six months from when it started to be circulating in the population to actually having a vaccine that would be ready for um, implementation. So that's kind of a scary thought because in six months time, I mean, by that time in the 1918 flu, the, the pandemic was mostly over or that was like the second huge wave had already begun. 
Well, so there had always there yeah. was by that time you're saying it, uh, you know, there was already a massive die off event. Yes. Yeah. Because the thing about influenza and the reason why we talk about it a lot as disease ecologists and why people who study sort of pandemics are really scared of influenza is because, uh, A, it can change very rapidly. So it's hard for us to keep up with. It's hard for us to develop vaccines to it, um, which also means that it's hard for our bodies to combat it. It is more deadly than people think. So not only do people die from influenza, but they also die from secondary bacterial infections on top of influenza viruses, uh, especially the very old and the very young and the immunocompromised. But it also spreads very rapidly. So it can spread to a lot of different people from a single infected person. And like I mentioned before, it starts to spread, you're infectious, before you show symptoms, which means things that we tend to use to prevent the spread of outbreak, like quarantine, don't really work very well for influenza because you can't identify sick people until after they've probably already exposed dozens, if not hundreds of people, if they, for example, got on a plane. So it's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, so it's not, so when you're talking about like the efficiency of spread, do we know like what, what disease spreads, like has the potential to spread the quickest? Measles. <laughs> Measles. Like they, <laughs> like from, from the, uh, um, from I am legend. Yeah, exactly. Oh my so God. So that has from, from one individual effects, infects on average 12 to 18 other um, individuals with measles. And so if each one of those 12 to 18 infects, you can imagine 12 to 18. So, I mean, imagine the growth of that curve, like how quickly the world would be infected. I'm assuming so. much quicker than the six months it would take somebody to prepare a, like a, a cure for it. Yeah. Fortunately yeah. we have a measles vaccine, but, <laughs> <laughs> but if, it, if it's genetically engineered, then, then you know, we may not, who the hell yeah. knows. Yeah. Oh man. That's... <laughs> but even something like influenza, which usually only has an, what it's what we call an R naught. It's the number of people that you infect a single, a single infected person infects. However many people influenza usually is only about two, but even that, if you think about, one person on a plane infecting two people on that plane. And then those two people are going to get on their connecting flight and infect two more people on each of those planes. Mm. Like it really grows exponentially, even if you're talking about a small R naught value. So when you get into diseases like measles, it, it becomes really, really terrifying. Mm-hmm. So we're, what you're saying is that we're not really as protected from a potential pandemic as we like to think we are. Oh, no. no. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, with some of these things, they're vaccine preventable. But for the viruses that we have no idea where they come from. So a lot of the emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic. So they're of animal origin. And that can come from um, wildlife being in contact with domestic animals. So like wild birds and domestic fowl or domestic uh fowl interacting with domestic chick or domestic um, pigs and that there's all of these mixing of different viruses can really sort of create this terrifying um, hobbled together virus that could definitely have an enormous mortality rate. So these are the things like bird flu and swine flu and yeah, you know, all of the donkey flu and draft flu. Yeah, it's like it seems like yeah. every every Lots week there's like a different animal related flu. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. SARS. And then we've got Ebola. These are all, I mean, a lot of these are zoonotic 
viruses are really sort of one of the um, touted as some of the, the potential pandemic causers or at least epidemic causers. Have you guys seen the movie Contagion? I have not seen it. Neither have I. Oh, my oh God. Oh, we're slacking. Okay. We're slacking over here. <laughs> so I would say if you'd like to see an epidemiologist named Aaron. Yep. Played by Kate Winslet. Pretty much the best thing ever. No. <laughs> If you'd like to see what is a truly terrifying movie, it doesn't involve zombies, but it does involve a global pandemic. And it is in, can I say our opinion? Can sure. I speak for both of us? Well, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but okay. It is <laughs> one, of the, one of the best disease movies yes. of all time. Yeah. It's really well done. It's obviously no movie is like 1000% scientifically accurate, but... It does a really great job of depicting not only how diseases can spill over into humans, but also how they can spread from human to human and what happens in an outbreak like that. It's it's really, really great. Yeah. Oh, I have to check Terrifying. that out. <laughs> so I, I think we can easily say that one of the biggest take home points from this entire zombie episode is to get vaccinated. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We'd love it if that was the number one takeaway. Okay. We're going to make it the number one takeaway right now. If you're listening at home, make (laughs) sure you get vaccinated. I think even and flu season is like upon us, right? It's coming up. Yeah, definitely. Now's the time. Yeah. So uh, make sure. And I think, you know, last year's um, last year's flu season was actually pretty rough. I think there were, um, you know, a fair number of deaths. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. on a serious note, get vaccinated, protect yourself and your loved ones and um, and help to prevent the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) <laughs> I always kind of feel after getting vaccinated a little bit more like a superhero because I can no longer get whatever it is I just got vaccinated for. Yeah. Was one is. of the things that they actually suggested in the paper was like, maybe this is why people are more sociable after their influenza shot is because they feel a little bit invincible. Yeah. It's like running down the hallways. I'm a god. Right. <laughs> invincible. <laughs> Like, it's time to go to that rave I've been wanting to go yeah. to or whatever. I don't know. Oh, man. This is <laughs> like general boldness. Do. Yeah. That's awesome. These young people. So um, so I think we're going to wrap it up there. Um, but for everyone listening at home, again, this is just for the first part of our two-part crossover event. Um, so this would, we're gonna, you know, this one is out on Halloween. And the next one will air. We don't know we exactly. Can't uh, tell you that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, tentatively, so we can, yeah, tentatively in in December. Yeah, unfortunately, we're being pushed back later than we'd like to. Okay. Um, but so, so we're not going to be able to release our second season. We'll start at the end of November, and this will be our yeah. second episode. Yeah. Okay. Or our version will be our second episode. So. So there'll be yeah. a little bit of suspense. Which is yes. always it's yeah. good to build the suspense. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, so in the meantime, where can the people listening find you? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at TPWKY and then on Facebook and Instagram and the interweb. Like the website is thispodcastwillkillyou.com. <laughs> All right. This podcast will kill you. Thanks, thank you again um, so much. It was 
I mean, as always, just a pleasure talking with you both. Um, you know, I, your podcast is, is amazing. You're both amazing. You're some of my favorite people. I'm really glad that we got, we get to do this crossover event. We are too. Yes. This was so this fun. This was so much fun. It was really fun to chat zombies and death and parasites with you guys. It's like our favorite thing to talk about. We literally yeah. spent the day watching 28 weeks later today. Yeah. Ooh. No joke. <laughs> Another good one. So. If you oh, guys yeah. looking for it, would recommend. if folks are looking for something to do after this podcast on Halloween, you should dive into it. Lots of thrills and chills. And Arian, my man, as always, good having you in the lab. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Had a lot of fun this episode and happy Halloween, everyone. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And take care. I really hope you enjoyed episode seven of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Stay tuned for the second part of this series, which will air as part of the upcoming second season of This Podcast Will Kill You. If you can't wait that long, make sure you check out the first season of This Podcast Will Kill You because it was absolutely amazing. And you can uh, find that at thispodcastwillkillyou.com. And if you're just not ready for Halloween to be over quite yet... You can also check out my upcoming interview with Anna Fisher Pinkert as part of Harvard's Veritalk podcast. That will air on November the 2nd, and it's entitled King Kong vs. Gravity. So with all that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious.